I'm a school teacher. I taught elementary school for 34 and a half years. I've been living in Chicago all my life. Gwen Jones grew up in Woodlawn, a black community on Chicago's South Side. In the 1980s, she met a man who'd been raised in the same part of town, but they didn't find each other in Chicago. It was uh, on a skiing trip. Can I tell you about that? Sure. Okay. <laughs> I went on a skiing trip. He, he, he was a Gwen had signed up for a vacation for black skiers. And when she got to the mountain, she caught sight of something that commanded her attention. I was down at the bottom, and I looked up at the top, and I saw this handsome man going down the slopes. He had on a wide-brim hat, a double-breasted suit, and a duster, one of those long duster coats. It was flying all, you know, in the wind, and I've never seen anybody ski down the slopes like that. I mean, it was just, it was awesome to me. You were like, this is a guy I want to get to know. Yes, totally. And plus, like I said, he was a good-looking man. Like Gwen, this man was a black skier, and he was on her trip, which meant they'd both be going back to Chicago. We got on the bus together, and then we started our conversation. That man's name was Henry Brown. And once Gwen and Henry started talking, they never really stopped. He had a gift of words. He was very smart, very intelligent, and very charismatic. How long did it take for you guys to kind of get into a relationship? Uh, Not long. Gwen, who was around 40 years old at the time, was quiet and laid back. Henry was a decade older and had enough energy for both of them. We would go out dancing, and he'd get out there and twirl me around, always debonair. He always had that air about him. Yeah, and he looked good, okay. (laughs) Gwen and Henry had a lot of memorable days together, but one afternoon still stands out. We were taking our parents, his mother, my mother, out to a Mother's Day luncheon, Drury Lane Theater on 95th and Western. It's not the luncheon itself that stuck in Gwen's mind. It's the drive back home through Chicago's South Side. I was sitting in the front with Henry and our parents. They were sitting in the back. And as we were driving down the street, we were all like, wow, look at that. What caught their attention were billboards. They were everywhere, on empty lots and on the sides of buildings. And they were all advertising the same thing. Smoking. And they had all these beautiful young people smiling and laughing and looking like they were dancing and having a good time. And they were smoking these cigarettes. And they were all black. Henry felt like those beautiful young people were blowing smoke right into his face. He was definitely against cigarette smoking. And he he picked up on it. He started noticing, he started counting, he started looking on the south side, all these billboards. In the black neighborhoods they drove through, there were billboards around every corner. But as they got closer to Chicago's predominantly white north side, the scenery changed. You didn't see hardly any billboards. It was obvious what was happening. They were targeting the black community, pushing the smoking. And Henry was like, this is not right, it's not fair. In that moment, something awakened in Henry. He found the cause he wanted to devote his life to. 
it was like it was burning in him. And he really wanted to do something about it. Henry Brown would do something so powerful that it would inspire a national movement. This middle-aged man from Chicago would transform into an anti-smoking vigilante. In 1990, he'd be celebrated as a superhero and become a public enemy of the tobacco industry. And he'd accomplish all of that under a secret identity. Cigarettes are the biggest killers of America's black people. More than half of the billboards you're likely to see are selling this single product. We are now becoming directly in the crosshairs, and they are proud enough to announce it. You shouldn't have the right to sell cigarettes to children. And he thought, I'm going to do something about this. This is one year, 1990. Mandrake the Magician. There was a part of Henry Brown that loved to stand out, to roar down a mountain in a double-breasted suit, or twirl his girlfriend on the dance floor. But Henry also had a way of receding into the background. He worked his whole life as a court reporter, sitting silently and taking down what other people said. And when he wasn't in the courtroom, he was usually home with his daughter, who he raised mostly on his own. When my parents split up, he was in charge of getting me out of the house every day. That's Henry's daughter, Micheline Russell Brown. I remember him learning how to braid hair, sitting on top of the washing machine in my maternal grandmother's house, braiding the mop. He told me every day that I was loved and that he loved me. Micheline is biracial. And after her parents separated, she and her dad lived in a majority white neighborhood on Chicago's north side. He would warn me that People might not like me because of the color of my skin or because of who I was or who he was. And he was always making sure that I had Black role models, and I did. When Micheline was young, her father took her to campaign rallies for Harold Washington, Chicago's first Black mayor. Henry also made sure she stayed connected to the predominantly Black parts of the city where he'd grown up. Just because we didn't live on the South Side didn't mean that the Black folks that lived in the neighborhood weren't our community. One day in the late 1980s, when they were driving back from the South Side, Henry gave his daughter an assignment. My father asked me to count the number of billboards that we saw on the way home. Micheline took that task very seriously. She pulled out a notebook and pen and tallied every tobacco ad she saw. Tick, 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 slash for five. And it was so clear, even as a preteen, that, oh, all these billboards, they're in the Black neighborhoods. A public health survey backed up Micheline's findings. Chicago's minority wards had, on average, three times more tobacco billboards than white ones did. Most of them weren't huge, six feet high by 12 feet wide but they were impossible to overlook. And this wasn't just a Chicago thing. All across America, black children were besieged with pro-smoking messages, while white kids were largely insulated from them. Henry Brown felt certain that wasn't an accident, and he was right. Come up to the cool taste, the coolest taste in any cigarette. 
Tobacco companies always invested a huge amount in marketing. Their ideal customer was someone who could get hooked for life, someone young. Smoke cool. Youth markets have always been the growth market. Keith Weilu is the author of Pushing Cool, Big Tobacco, Racial Marketing, and the Untold Story of the Menthol Cigarette. People don't quite remember this, but the central focus of tobacco advertising was college campuses. Cigarette makers pushed their products on college kids of all races. But then something dramatic happened that made them change their approach. In 1964, the U.S. Surgeon General issued a report linking tobacco use with lung cancer, heart disease, and overall mortality. My advice to the smoker would be to stop. My advice to the person who has not started smoking is don't start. That stark warning put big tobacco on the defensive. There was a threat of real regulation. Then there was a lot of pressure on the industry to stop advertising to kids. Feeling that pressure, the tobacco companies ditched their strategy of marketing on college campuses. That technique of targeting young people was just too obvious to regulators. Going forward, they would try to capture the youth market in a different way, one the government would be less likely to restrict. That's when they moved aggressively for the first time into urban advertising. And black youth markets were the place to go as far as they were concerned. In 1964, advertisements for cool menthol cigarettes started showing up in black newspapers. Those ads sold the lie that menthols were healthier than other cigarettes. But also with that distinctive cool sensation when you inhaled. When menthol sales ticked up in black communities, everyone in the industry took notice. And what you had then is a massive kind of momentum swing. Other brands began to emulate the strategy. The tobacco companies flooded black audiences with menthol messages. After Congress banned radio and TV ads for cigarettes in 1971, still images popped up everywhere. Photographs of young, cigarette-loving black people that ran in magazines like Jet and Ebony, on the sides of public buses, and on billboards. Those advertisements were tailored to my community with expert precision, shaped by social science, but also an understanding of how those advertisements translated into brand preferences and sales. You can't go anywhere in a black community without being the target of fancy ads glamorizing smoking. The result, $2.4 billion a year black spend on the cigarettes that kill them. By 1990, it was common knowledge that black Americans smoked at higher rates than white ones and suffered disproportionately from lung cancer. But the tobacco companies said they weren't doing anything wrong. They were just selling their products to the people who wanted to buy them. You advertise to the area, the community, the geographic and demographic group that uses the product. It was a cold-hearted calculation. And it made Henry Brown incredibly angry. In his hometown of Chicago, he saw billboards full of smiling black faces luring young people to their deaths. Henry was a middle-aged court reporter and a single dad, a guy with no official power. But he felt a responsibility to protect all those children. Kids like his own daughter, Micheline, 
Nobody else was talking about this. And I think it's something that he saw as something that he could do. He could achieve it. His first idea was to reach out to the billboard companies and just straight up ask them to take down their tobacco ads. The responses he got were polite but firm. No, we're not going to do that. Those rejections only strengthened Henry's resolve. He decided to take his message directly to his community, to the people he felt most needed to hear it. And he knew exactly how he wanted to reach them. WVON, Talk of Chicago, 1450 AM, 591-5990. When I come back, we'll jump back on this agenda. For Black Chicagoans, WVON was more than just a radio station. It was a place to find connection. Your own dialogue. Hey, Professor. Who is this, Joe? Yeah. Joe. Yeah. Hello, Joe. What you know? Remember that? All kinds of people called in to WVON to spread the word about the issues they cared about, including Henry Brown. Uh, good morning, um, Professor. Good morning to the WVON audience. I want to thank WVON for allowing me to come on the air again mm-hmm. and talk about this uh, particular matter. That's a recording of Henry that his girlfriend Gwen Jones taped off her stereo 30 years ago. On WVON radio station... <laughs> He was on there talking almost daily about the billboards and the negative effect that they were having on the community. And we can see how many of these billboards were in our neighborhood. And so the matter of the fact is we have a broad collective community to fight this problem. Henry railed against racial inequality and pushed for legislative reform. He was relentless. He would call in, it felt like, all the time. As soon as one person hung up, he knew immediately to dial in. And when he would come on there, everybody knew he was going to talk about those billboards. What is it that we as a community can do to find some kind of a solution to a problem and then implement that solution? In his calls to WVON, Henry never revealed his real name. First of all, he didn't want people to know who he was, that he was a professional guy working in the court system and all of that. Once we get something started, uh, we're going to finish it. And this is a struggle that's all across America that we intend to finish. He was trying to win the billboard struggle with the power of his arguments. But in 1990, it didn't feel like he was making a real difference. On the South Side, the cigarette billboards were all still standing. He wanted to make the billboards go away. So he decided he wanted to do something else. We have to take action because no action has taken place. In January 1990, he told Gwen that he had a new plan. And he said he was going to do something about it. And he said, let's go get the paint. Let's take a quick break. You want to walk around this way? Sure, sure. Earlier this year, Gwen Jones took our senior producer to the south side of Chicago to see the neighborhood where Henry Brown grew up. We are around where he lived. When Gwen and Henry used to visit this spot together, they were dismayed by what they saw. There was nothing here. A lot of vacant land. 
over to your right, there were billboards over there. They weren't tall, they were low. And then they were on some of the abandoned buildings down here. <laughs> this is where it all began. In January 1990, Henry told Gwen that he needed her help. He had a very important mission, and he wanted her to come along. He asked me if I would drive him down to a paint store. He got his paint, white paint. He got his paintbrush, his bucket, and that's where it started. That same night, they headed to that spot full of vacant lots. They found a billboard there that Henry could reach with a small ladder. It showed young Black people having the time of their lives smoking cigarettes. And he got out of the car with his equipment. I got out of the car and stand up there looking at it. And he started painting. This was Henry's plan. He was going to make the billboards go away by whitewashing them. He was so excited about it. He had the biggest smile on his face. He was like so happy. Uh, that, you know, it, it had started for him. It went exactly as Henry hoped. He'd climbed up to the sign, slapped on some paint, and made that tobacco ad disappear. Henry felt emboldened and ready to make a larger statement. Gwen wasn't so sure that was a good idea. He had discussed it with me the night before, and I started, oh no, I don't want to do that. But Henry wasn't going to change his mind, and Gwen didn't want him out there alone. So early on a Saturday morning, they got in her car and drove to a busy intersection. 79th and Stony Island Avenue. It was a big, big billboard up there. That big billboard advertised Crown Royal Whiskey. Henry hated liquor ads almost as much as tobacco ones. And this sign was looming over the neighborhood next to a major bus stop with traffic day and night. For Henry, that visibility was the point. He wanted everyone in Chicago to see what he'd done. But as soon as they parked, Henry realized he couldn't reach the sign. So what he did was he had to stand on top of my car to reach up to get on the ledge where the billboard was. And so he goes, lifting himself up, laid flat out. His legs were dangling not knowing that there was a lot of jagged edges up there. His zipper got caught. We couldn't move. I'm looking around like people were at the bus stop looking at us, and I was like, oh my God. And here comes a police car. She thought that was it, that they were about to get arrested. But the Chicago police didn't pay them much attention. They looked up and they kept going. And eventually he was able to hoist himself up and. And he painted that sucker. <laughs> got some paint on my car, but that was okay. And they got down and we went out and had breakfast. For Gwen and Henry, this became a regular routine. He'd whitewash the billboards and she'd look out for trouble. Henry knew he was putting himself in danger. So he kept his vigilante act hidden from his teenage daughter, Micheline. And when she did eventually find out, he didn't want her involved. He was doing something that was illegal potentially dangerous, and he would never have wanted to put me in harm's way at all. Did you ever go after the fact and see some of the billboards that he had painted? Yes. I remember sort of being surprised that the whole thing wasn't covered up. And then understanding later that you still want people to know that you're covering it up. 
so you have to leave part of the ad there. That's what Henry wanted, for his paint to be just as eye-catching as the images he'd covered over. I think he knew this was going to be a big deal. You know, maybe he would get the attention needed to have people realize what was happening and how it was affecting our children. That prediction was exactly right. People in Chicago immediately noticed what he was up to. Within a few days, he claimed credit for the whitewashing in a couple of newspaper interviews. Only, he didn't do it as Henry Brown. Instead, he used another name, an alter ego. He said that the man who painted those billboards was Mandrake. Mandrake came from a comic from when he was a kid. Mandrake was the magician, made things disappear. The Mandrake comic strip dated back to the 1930s. He was one of America's first superheroes, a dashing crime fighter with a top hat and a cape. Beware this man if you deal in evil. For here comes Mandrake, Mandrake the magician. It really did produce a mystique about what he was doing, being so mysterious, making those billboards disappear from the community. As Mandrake, he told reporters that Black and Hispanic communities were overrun with tobacco and liquor ads. He explained that he had a moral obligation to stand up and fight back. In one interview, he said, if Dr. King were alive today, he'd be doing exactly what I'm doing. On Chicago's WVON radio, Mandrake was celebrated as a folk hero. Mandrake been talking about this for months and Sundays. Give him the credit, because he did the work. Mandrake, I know that you are ridding our community of these billboards. And it's very important to me that we are about trying to liberate ourselves. Mandrake was making a name for himself outside Chicago, too. A writer in California called him a gallant black Don Quixote. A syndicated columnist compared him to Harriet Tubman. And a national magazine put him next to Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice on a list of people who define what it is to be black in the 90s. Mandrake had his detractors, too. A Chicago Sun-Times editorial said that no one had the right to be a vigilante or a vandal. That story ended with a brush-off. We don't need Mandrake. I remember some of those comments, but <laughs> he didn't pay any attention to those at all. He may have been disappointed about it, but he didn't take that to heart. Mandrake had wanted his voice to be heard. Now he'd started a national conversation. To my dying day, Fred, I will see to it that every obtrusive billboard that has a negative impact upon my children is removed. That's Mandrake on PBS's NewsHour. The camera shows him from behind and never reveals his face. As he speaks, he's standing under a cigarette billboard. The young black woman on that sign has been covered with paint. You take a look at these ads that surround this community. These ads are directed toward our young, our youth. You don't see any ads of older people, people 40, 50 years old, drinking and smoking on these billboards. On the other side of this debate, unsurprisingly, were people from the billboard industry. They argued that tobacco was legal and censoring cigarette ads violated the First Amendment. It makes it awfully easy to take that next product and censor it or ban it. It might be oatmeal the next time. 
It might be grits, and that really would be a shame. The cigarette companies themselves made a different argument, one that turned the tables on their Black critics. They said that any suggestion that Black people needed special protection from advertising was paternalistic. Company spokesmen wouldn't comment on camera, but a statement said RJR believes all adults are capable of making informed decisions about smoking, and to imply Blacks are less capable is bigoted. It wasn't just tobacco executives saying that. The executive director of the NAACP, Benjamin Hooks, said that Black Americans didn't need guardian angels to protect their best interests. But Hooks and the NAACP weren't exactly objective observers. And I'm standing here tonight holding a check for $100,000 from the Philip Morris companies to help us put on this affair. That's Benjamin Hooks in 1990 at the NAACP's annual convention. We are not for sale, but if the tobacco companies want to give us some money to help us move black people forward, in the name of God, give it, and we're going to pray over it and accept it and receive it and use it to build a stronger, stronger America. Mandrake publicly called out black leaders like Hooks, who took tobacco money and echoed the industry's line. But he wasn't fighting the cigarette makers totally on his own. All over the country, inner-city residents are taking dead aim on billboards that sell alcohol and tobacco. We must take a stand against this. We want to live a long time, too. Mandrake may have been the only one whitewashing billboards, but there were people all over America who thought the same way he did. Alberta Tinsley Williams is a county commissioner from Detroit's east side. She's led a fight to rid her city of all alcohol and tobacco billboards. They have one objective, and that is how much money can we draw in? Let's say everything's okay in billboard heaven, but yet down below our people are suffering. In 1990, that activism felt especially urgent. That's because the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company had just announced a plan to target Black communities even more aggressively. Developing a new cigarette, especially for Blacks, and admitting it, is revolutionary. The brand is called Uptown, a menthol cigarette RJR plans to start test marketing in Philadelphia. Now, of course, in my mind, that was ludicrous. That's Reverend Jesse Brown. In 1990, he was a Lutheran minister in Philadelphia. And when R.J. Reynolds announced its new, explicitly Black-focused cigarette brand, he was outraged. They had particularly decided that they don't have to hide anymore. They can just openly come out and say they're going to come and hurt you and hurt your children and hurt your future and not have anybody react to it. But not this time. Not this time. Reverend Brown helped build a coalition in Philadelphia, a group of clergy members and public health advocates who spoke out to the media and rallied neighborhood support. We would use our clout as a community, as a culture, as a people, to stop the industry from targeting us. That's more powerful than anything that they can come up with. Within a matter of weeks, R.J. Reynolds admitted defeat. In response to all the criticism, the R.J. Reynolds company has announced it has canceled its plans to test market the cigarette here. So we had a watershed event, but we didn't stop too long to celebrate. The industry doesn't stop, so we don't stop. Speaking out had worked against Uptown Cigarettes, but it might not work again. So Reverend Brown started asking around to see what else he might want to try. 
Well, one of the persons we had heard about was a man called Mandrake. Matter of fact, didn't know who Mandrake was except for that name. But I know what he did. And that was whitewashing some of the advertising that was going on in the Chicago area. Mandrake wasn't just talking. He was taking direct action. And soon, Reverend Brown would be too. We actually blackwashed the billboards in Philadelphia using black paint instead of white paint. The reality is, it was free paint that the hardware store wanted to get rid of. So we took it. It just happened to be black. You would have been up for doing blue washing if the blue paint was free? I, it would have been just fine with us, <laughs> yeah. After just a few months, Mandrake had imitators all across the country. This Baptist minister is giving a whole new meaning to the term holy roller. Activists whitewashed cigarette ads in New York City, Baltimore, and Dallas, dozens at a time. And back in Chicago, the man who'd started it all kept on painting, with his closest ally by his side. And I have to give credit to people who have played a very integral part in this struggle. Do not go out and try to seek personal aggrandizement or mm-hmm. give them credit to themselves. Those people need to be recognized. Because you never hear about my girlfriend, Gwen Jones. I wasn't out there whitewashing. I was just holding the ladder for him, making sure he had the brushes and the rollers. That's how it always was, with Henry out front and Gwen supporting him. But one night he suggested that they try something different, that this time she should take the lead. I got out of the car. I got the paintbrush and the roller, and I started painting one of the billboards. And it was... uh, It was amazing, the energy that I felt around us. It was like spirits. You could actually feel it. The energy was thick. It was heavy. I was like, wow, this is truly, truly amazing. And when I got back in the car, I said, Henry, is this what it's like? And he looked at me. He said, yes. He said, I I feel that all the time. We'll be back in a minute. In 1990, Mandrake the Magician took the law and a paint roller into his own hands and became kind of a celebrity. Mandrake was on the national news and got name-checked in Congress. And all the while, his true identity, the court reporter Henry Brown, remained a secret, even when this happened. So as I was scanning the party last night, I was talking to Henry B. Henry B. Henry Brown, come right up here. That's right. This man who was living a hidden life as a vigilante, he went on the Oprah Winfrey show. All I know is that my father found out about this party that Oprah was going to be at and had jumped on the chance. Henry's daughter, Micheline Russell Brown. He wanted to get her ear so he could talk to her about billboard stuff. Micheline isn't sure what exactly her dad said to Oprah, but he must have made a pretty good impression. Because after they met, Oprah decided to put him on camera and she started talking Henry up. You seem like a pretty nice guy to me. 
I try to be. Try to be. I try to my best. <laughs> and he has his own job. Respectable court reporter. Yes, I am. And up for a nice time. Of course. Nice time. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. You have to Henry is well. on center stage, oh, in yes, full view of the cameras. Yes, I am. But he isn't alone yes, for long. Okay, please meet Gail's mom okay. and my second mom, Peggy King. Peggy. Oprah hadn't invited Henry Brown on TV to talk about billboards. She'd invited him so she could set him up with her best friend, Gail King's mom. It was a dating show. By the way, Gwen Jones told me she was okay with this TV matchmaking thing, because she and Henry weren't exactly exclusive. Meanwhile, Oprah is all in. She screams and pumps her arms and jumps up and down. It's got the same energy as Tom Cruise jumping on Oprah's couch. Except this time, Oprah is Tom Cruise. I've got to say, both Henry Brown and Peggy King look pretty dapper and extremely nervous. They're actually holding hands, awkwardly and pretty much silently. (laughs) Okay, you'll become more talkative over lunch, I hope. (laughs) Micheline says that sparks didn't really fly between her dad and Gail King's mom. But they did develop a very nice friendship. And Gwen says that going on Oprah didn't blow Henry's cover. He was clouded with mystery. He loved that. Yeah, he was all about being, you know, mysterious Mandrake. As the months went on, the line between Mandrake and Henry did get a little blurrier. In the summer of 1990, Henry testified under his own name at a Chicago City Council hearing. He argued that billboard companies weren't totally protected by the First Amendment citing Supreme Court precedent. When an alderman asked him what he knew about Mandrake, Henry gave a coy response. He said, well, rumors have been greatly exaggerated as far as him whitewashing billboards. You know, I can't say how they found out about who he was, but he was arrested. The Chicago police had left Mandrake alone for months. That changed in July 1990. He was on the platform of an L train station on the south side when a security guard saw him whitewashing billboards in broad daylight. The arrest report identifies him as Henry M. Brown, occupation painter. It says he was advised of his rights, taken to jail, and released on bond that same day. He took care of that. He would always carry a little extra money in his pocket in case he was arrested. So he he came prepared. Always. Henry had been worried that his activism could put his career as a court reporter at risk. But becoming an anti-tobacco vigilante didn't cost him his livelihood. And eventually, Henry decided that Mandrake didn't have to be a secret anymore. Oh, look. Oh, boy. That's a good picture of him doing what he loved to do. In 1992, Henry posed for a photograph holding a paint roller. He's in the middle of whitewashing a malt liquor sign, but he's looking at the camera. He's got on a black top hat and a duster coat, the kind he liked to wear skiing. And the white mask he's got with him isn't covering his face. And he's standing there with his big, beautiful, beautiful smile. He's so happy, happy doing his job. Henry Brown was owning what he'd done. But going public didn't end up amplifying his voice. Because in the early 90s, 
a flamboyant white priest started commanding all the attention. I think that's one of the problems we have right now is people feel like they got this. No, you don't have it. Sit down and listen and talk. We can tell you in the ground level what we need and then see what you can do. Father Michael Flager presided over a black Catholic parish on the South Side. He started painting over tobacco signs too, after Mandrake did. Gwen remembers the spotlight shifting as soon as a white man got involved. The newspapers and the news media, they were all focusing in on what Father Flager was doing. You wouldn't even know that Mandrake had anything to do with the billboards. That really bothered Henry. It saddened him. I want to talk about a little bit about the Father Flager involvement in the struggle. This is Henry on WVON radio in 1993, trying to set the record straight about the white priest. And it's not because I'm coming from any emotional resentment feeling, but it's a matter of recording history. If we don't record our history and record it properly, it will go by the board. Precisely. And the children will grow up just like I grew up thinking that, that it had to be someone outside of our image to be our savior. Gwen says that last part is what mattered the most to Henry, that he wanted kids who looked like him to know that people in their own communities were fighting on their behalf. Now, Mandrake loved children, and he was very adamant about making sure our children knew that this is somebody Black. I'm an African-American male, and I love you, and I want you to recognize that you know, it doesn't always take a person of a different color to stand up for you. In 1996, Henry's activism was still going strong, but at age 61, he'd mostly put away his paintbrushes and rollers. He had a somewhat of a low-key nature, but with power. Somebody who knows you don't have to say carry a big stick because he knows he's got one already. Reverend Jesse Brown of Philadelphia partnered up with Henry to build a national anti-tobacco network. They pressured billboard companies to take down ads close to churches and schools and used local zoning laws to get hundreds of illegal signs removed. And Henry was always thinking about his next move. I go over to his house. He had papers he had been researching, laid out, and always talking about where he was going, how he was going to help our community. Gwen says that at this point, she and Henry were no longer dating, but they were still extremely close. We were always in communication, always. Henry wanted to keep his daughter Micheline close, too. In 1996, she was in Brooklyn, taking time off from college. She says her dad bribed her to come back to Chicago over the summer by offering to buy her a computer. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. Which was like, in retrospect, one of the best things that I ever did because I got to spend the summer hanging out with him. Micheline and her dad played Scrabble and went for walks. A lot of the time, they would just talk. In the fall, Micheline went back to school. On Monday, September 23rd, 1996, she had a dance class. And when class was over, somebody told me that I should call my mom. And she told him that my dad's body had been found in the river. The Chicago River. Henry Brown didn't know how to swim, and his body was found fully clothed. The medical examiner's report says he died by drowning, but that the events leading up to his death were undetermined. You don't go swimming in the Chicago River. 
you're either murdered or you commit suicide. And he wasn't suicidal. Gwen Jones also says there's no way that Henry would have taken his own life. It was foul play. I believe that to my heart. And uh, it, it just wasn't investigated in my mind enough or even at all. In 1996, the Chicago police said they were following up on every lead about Henry Brown's death. But when I asked the police department for files connected to the drowning, they told me they couldn't find any. His death wasn't high profile. He was a public figure, but not hugely so. So I think it was easy for them to ignore. Micheline and Gwen both feel absolutely certain that Henry's death had nothing to do with his anti-tobacco activism. They think it might be connected to his job as a court reporter, but they can't be sure about that. And they blame the Chicago police for that lack of certainty. For not dedicating the resources to find out why a devoted father and community leader ended up dead in the Chicago River. It's so unfortunate, too, because he had so much more to give and so much more he wanted to do. He was really full of love. He talked about adopting another kid. That's something that we talked about the summer before he died. You know, it's kind of his next step, and he was like, maybe I should do that. He was really, like, a kind-hearted, genuine, like, good guy. And it's cheesy, but he did, I mean, he really did want the world to be a a better place, a happier place. In 1998, two years after Henry Brown died, the four largest American tobacco companies settled lawsuits with 46 U.S. states, Washington, D.C., and five U.S. territories. The master settlement agreement required Big Tobacco to pay more than $200 billion to offset the cost of treating smoking-related illnesses. It also imposed severe restrictions on tobacco advertising. That included a total ban on billboards. Mandrake had won. Having written this book about the history of the menthol cigarette in America, Mandrake is unquestionably the most admirable character in that history, as far as I'm concerned. Keith Whelu, the author of Pushing Cool. He is someone who acted on his convictions knowing that what he was doing was controversial. He was a really thoughtful critic of a set of practices that a lot of people in communities across America saw as deeply, deeply harmful. But he was willing to take like one extra step that I don't think many people in his time period were willing to do. This is Cottage Grove right here at this corner. All this is new, but it's wonderful to see, isn't it? It really is. Gwen Jones likes to walk through the Southside neighborhood where Mandrake worked his magic. 39th and Oakwood. This is the location where he started his whitewashing of billboards. Now, thanks to Mandrake, this neighborhood and cities all over America look very different. He's looking down now, smiling, because you don't see any billboards out here. None whatsoever. So he's smiling. In this spot, today, there's a city park. A Thursday when I came by, the guys were out playing basketball. Over here you had 
children out on the swings with their family. That park is named for a man who cared about this neighborhood and the people who lived there. They got a big sign that says Mandrake Park. So I'm thrilled about that. A park named after him. Isn't that beautiful? Next time on One Year 1990, when George H.W. Bush tells the world he's never eating broccoli again, the produce industry fights back. Suddenly we had a call from the White House saying, we hear that there is a truckload of broccoli destined for the president and we need to know what your intentions are. If you want to hear all of our one-year episodes without any ads, you should subscribe to Slate Plus. As a member, you'll hear every Slate podcast without ads and never hit the paywall on Slate's website. And at the end of the season, you'll be able to hear a special behind-the-scenes conversation with our team about how we put together our 1990 stories. If you'd like to sign up for Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash oneyearplus. Again, that's slate.com slash oneyearplus. This episode was written by me, Josh Levine, One Year's editorial director. Our senior producer is Evan Chung. This episode was produced by Kelly Jones, Olivia Briley, and Evan Chung. It was edited by Joel Meyer and Derek John, Slate's executive producer of narrative podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merit Jacob, and we had mixing help from Kevin Bendis. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. Keith Waylu's book is Pushing Cool, Big Tobacco, Racial Marketing, and the Untold Story of the Menthol Cigarette. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1990 at oneyearatslate.com. You can call us on the One Year Hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to John Wiley Price, Alberta Tinsley-Williams, Alan Blom, Louis Sullivan, David R. Marshall, Art Clay, Bob Starks, Lucius Swilley, Paul Elisic, Peggy Weedman, Artie Davenport, Kim Belware, Bart Pappas, Danya Abdelhamid, Jake Bone, Sophie Summergrad, Susan Matthews, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more from 1990.